Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we are basically tonight concluding our Disciple Shift series, which is our fifth one that we have been doing, where we have basically looked at Christianity with, with, with some different perspective, with some different glasses. And we have basically tried to remove all the red tape from Christianity to look what really lies at the core and underneath the surface of this thing that we call Christianity and of this thing that we like to call church. Now, there's a scripture in Acts 2, verse 42, where Apostle Peter stood up in front of thousands of people, and he started preaching to them, and 3,000 people give their lives to God, which is an amazing miracle. And then it goes over in verse 42, and it says this, these people that have given their lives to God devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So there are certain habits that these people took upon themselves when they became Christians or as they were known back then, followers of the way. But during this, surf, or during this series, we've actually looked at some of these habits, some of these disciplines that people who call themselves Christians were busy doing, and we asked ourselves, have these things to us become an end in itself, or are these things that we do, like reading the Bible, like praying, like going to church, like taking communion, joining a community group, are these things a means to a greater end, which is knowing the person of Jesus around whom our faith is ultimately built. And so probably one of the greatest religious traditions in our society is that of communion, is when we once a month in church have bread and juice and we take a little piece of bread and we take a little bit of juice and we almost take time to remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And many of us, I know me, I, I grew up with this being a very sort of religious thing reserved for those religious elite people who were really, really good Christians and served God faithfully. But tonight I want to speak a little bit about how communion, how the Lord's Supper as we come to know it, is really just a means to a greater end, again, which is to know the person of Jesus. Now, I want you quickly for the next 30 seconds or a minute to quickly turn to your neighbor and tell them about one awkward experience you had when someone invited you over for a meal. Okay, so someone invited you over to their place and something odd happened in that moment. Quickly share with each other those stories. Great stuff. 
Anyone, anyone ever fought at the table? Got you to me. And William. So one of, one of these awkward or odd experiences that my wife and I had a few years ago, we became friends or wanted to become friends with people in our previous church. And so they invited us over for supper and we went over and stepping into their place, um, everything seemed normal. They seemed normal, but they had two little dogs, which I think was French bulldogs, right? French bulldogs who were pretty cute but odd looking and and just just weird or, or Boston terriers your Boston terriers so the the evening started quite normal and eventually we sat down at the table to have supper and while while we were praying for supper I started like picking up a smell like a very funky smell, like something that was really out of the ordinary. And so I thought, okay, cool, maybe someone around the table just slipped one. I'll forgive it. Jesus loves them. He has redeemed them. It is finished for them on the cross. And so we started enjoying our meal. And about two minutes into the meal, the same smell comes back again. And I glance at my wife and I'm like, give her the look of, was it you? Okay. Because... I mean, when you're, when you're married, you sort of know when it's the other person. You just know sort of how to confirm. And I get a very definite look like, was definitely not me, was it you? And I'm like, I wouldn't ask if it was me, all right? And so we go into this thing, and now we're living in a world where it's either one of them, the people that now invited us, that not only did it once, but now keeps doing it, all right? And at, at times, when the smell hits, my mouth was open, all right? I was like literally busy putting food into my mouth, and probably about six or seven times throughout the evening, I, I catch this horrible, horrible smell. So at the, only at the end of the evening, they break the news that their little dogs, Boston Terriers, that's apparently a thing, like for them. That's like their superpower that they, that they do. But we spent that evening living in the reality that one of these two people had like no tableside manners whatsoever. And I remember to this day, that was our very first sort of social interaction with these people. And the thing that I remember from that evening was not, I can't even remember what we had for, for supper. I can't remember the conversations we had. The one thing that really is burnt into my memory is the smell, <laughs> is that encounter. And so... When Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, he writes to a church and he says this, the meal that Jesus has invited you into, this meal of communion, the Lord's Supper seemed to be abused. You seem to have connected something different to what it was intended to be. Because what happened in the Corinthian church is they started taking communion regularly. So people would come to church hungry just to eat of the bread. And people would actually get drunk on the wine in church taking communion. It's like, yo, the Lord is good, taking it once, taking your seat, chilling it out. Yo, the Lord is, is so good, coming to the communion table again, one shot of wine, one piece of bread, going back to their seat, and then, man, I'm so overwhelmed by the Lord's goodness, coming to the table again and taking communion. And eventually they became drunk, and it became this whole out-of-control abuse of the Lord's Supper. And he's saying this, you're walking away here not with the memory of what Jesus Jesus has done, you're walking away here having despised what Jesus has done on the cross for you. 
See, and I want to bring us back this evening to what Jesus invited us into when he invited us to this table of the Lord's Supper. When he invites you to take communion, when we as a church prepare communion beforehand and invite you to participate, what exactly is it that we are celebrating in that moment? See, the history of the Lord's Supper, or as it was previously known, the Passover meal, was actually an annual feast that the Israelites celebrated to celebrate their freedom from Egypt, which basically was they were captive for many, many years in Egypt. And then there was one evening before Jesus or God would set them free. He told them to go into their homes, to slaughter a perfect lamb, and to smear the blood of the lamb across the doorpost. And so when the angel of death would come, he would pass over the homes who had the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorposts. And the ones who did not have the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorposts, the firstborn of those households would be killed. And that's the, the means which God used to free his own people from slavery in Egypt. And so on the night before God set them free, the Israelites went into their home, slaughtered the lamb, smeared the blood on the doorpost, and in faith they took communion. They ate the lamb, they ate the bread, and they had the wine in faith that the next day God would set them free from slavery. And so God was faithful and he set them free, and afterwards, the people of God were encouraged to annually celebrate this meal of Passover to commemorate the moment, the day that God set them free from slavery. But it was not only a celebration for those who were there, it was a retelling of their story of how they came to freedom and how they were freed from slavery. And so skip a few thousand years, Jesus invites his disciples around the table. And he's about to introduce a new kind of freedom that he's inviting them to, into. But only this time, Jesus is not introducing a freedom from a human oppressor. He's introducing freedom from the power of sin and death. And he's making this statement that this is the very last time ever in the human history that any sacrifice would be necessary to atone for your sin. And he's saying things will never be the same again. Everything is about to change for you should you respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment Jesus dying on the cross. After this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, not long after that, Jesus gets arrested and the moment comes where he's nailed to the cross and he's hanging on the cross and he's about to die and he gives his life over with these words, it is finished. And he declares that a new era has arrived. A new kind of freedom is about to overwhelm you. I'm inviting you into a new kind of freedom that you've never had before. Imagine for a moment the guy who was responsible for recording the death of Jesus in the records. Imagine that moment. I would one day when I get to heaven one want to see that moment where that guy in this whatever big book that they had back then writes down... Jesus Christ died at this time, on this day, at this place, and he was buried in a tomb. 
and a big rock was placed in front of the tomb. Imagine the shock on that guy's face a few days later. You know those memes on Facebook who say, if you ever feel useless, <laughs> think about the guy who designed a cover for the Nokia 3310. If you ever feel useless, think about the guy who recorded the death of Jesus in those books. Because three days later, he rose and he declared a new freedom for us. And everything changed. To this day, we are still being blown away and overwhelmed by what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. The moment the death of Jesus was recorded, mankind was repositioned for eternity. The gates of heaven flung open and every single person that would be born and that has been born received a personal invitation into the kingdom of God to spend eternity with your Father in heaven. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible change. Because it, it wasn't what it used to be. It wasn't always like that before. And we were repositioned. We were invited, firstly, to become part of a new family. When the death of Jesus was recorded, you and I were invited to become part of a new family. And this was, this was incredible news to millions and millions of people because up until that point, if you were not born a Jew, you were not welcome in the kingdom of God. So that's what they have known for thousands upon thousands of years. And all of a sudden, Jesus hangs on the cross and he makes this statement, everyone is welcome. Doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you are welcome. You are invited into the family of God, whether you were born into the people of God or not. Everyone is welcome in the family of God. See, and for many people back then, this was great news because they didn't come from very good families. Maybe it's incredible news for you to hear tonight because you don't come from a, a very good family. You don't really know family. You, know, you don't know what family was intended to be. And Jesus says, won't you, won't you be a part of my family? Wouldn't you like to step into my family? I remember a few years ago, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, we used to have our holidays at the seaside in the Mossel Bay area. Now, there's one specific beach in that area called Diaz Beach, right? And we used to go there and swim and chill on the beach. And this one specific year, my parents bought a jet ski, right? And they were on, on the water with a jet ski. My dad was driving the thing, and my mom was sitting at the back, and they were sort of circling. And then whenever you're done playing in the water with your jet ski, you would come out and you would sort of skid onto the sand with a jet ski and sort of park it there if I can call it that and I remember I was lying on the beach and I was watching my parents in the sea um, and eventually they decided listen we're going to come out we're going to park this jet ski and my dad took a run up with that thing and when they hit the sand my mom fell off all right and she literally was dragged behind the jet ski onto the beach now this is something to take note of there during December times there are about two 2,000 people on that beach, all right? I was sitting under my umbrella thinking to myself, I don't know these people. 
They're not my parents. Okay, I don't know them. My uncle got up, he ran to them. I just sat there in complete shock of what are you doing? Okay, how can you embarrass me like this? And obviously everyone saw them eventually walking towards where I was and made the conclusion that this was my family. But how many of you have heard the statement saying that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family? And that day I, I, I got the revelation of what that means. But the upside for you and I is that God did choose his family. And he chose you as his family. In other words, God is not ashamed of you. You cannot put God to shame. He looked at everything that you've done in the past, everything that you will do in the future, and he still chose you as his family. He still invited you to be related to him, to be his son or to be his daughter. He chose you. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 to 10 says this, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse 10 says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The scripture starts out and it says this, You are a chosen race you're a chosen race when the death of Jesus was recorded racial division was demolished because whether you're black white pink or green God says you are my chosen race your basis for unity is your relation to me being part of my family he goes on to say you are a royal priesthood. I want to tell you the death of Jesus on the cross did away with social separation. Jesus said it is finished. So whether you were born into a royal family or you were born in the slums, Jesus said you are my royal priesthood. It goes on to say you are a holy nation. When Jesus died on the cross and he said that it is finished, he did away with moral separation. So whether you have messed up gravely in your past or whether you've, you've behaved well as a Christian or a non-Christian, Jesus said, it doesn't matter, you are my holy nation, whether you've messed up severely or not. And it says there, you are a people for his own possession. See, once you were a nobody, but the moment you respond in faith to Jesus, you do not only become a somebody, but you become a child, a son or a daughter of the richest, most wealthy, most powerful, and at the same time, the most loving king and father that you will ever know. That's your position in Jesus, regardless of what you have done. There's nothing that you can do to change that. And you can try or you can feel like something that you do might change that. But Jesus says, there's nothing that you can do to change it. 
So not only did we become part of a new family, we became part of a new covenant, which is incredible news because the old covenant told us you need to work in order to be forgiven. You need to do in order for you to be accepted. But this new covenant says it's already been done on your behalf, regardless of what you do. I don't know how many of you are aware of what's happening in the news, but a week and a half ago, a little nine-year-old girl was raped and murdered. And they found her body, and the guy who was responsible for this was arrested, and he appeared in court. And I remember reading on social media how people would comment on this article and go, you will burn in hell one day. God will judge you one day. There's no hope for you. And I'm reading through these things, and I'm like, he deserves this. He deserves everything that these people are saying. And he's going to have to give account one day for what he has done. But here is the painful reality of the gospel. There's salvation for that man. The invitation of Christ went out to that man too. A rapist and a murderer, Jesus invites him to say, be a part of my family. Not because of what you have done or haven't done, but because of what I have done on your behalf. I've had the privilege of spending a bit of time with, with quite a few of you sitting here tonight. And for many of you, we've had the conversation about forgiveness. Okay, how God unconditionally forgives you and does not hold anything about you. And I've found very few people in my life who, when I told them about the unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness of God for you, I found very few people who did not feel the need to explain to me exactly what it is that they have done wrong in the past. But the incredible thing about the gospel is that Jesus did not come to fix you and I. We were unfixable. He came to kill you and I and have us be born again into a new creation. And the incredible thing about being a new creation is the past is irrelevant because it's dead. The old me is irrelevant because he's dead. God is saying you're a new creation. And what is true about Jesus is true of you. And what I'm saying about you in my word is true of you. Last week in our service, we had a moment where some of you came up to the front and wrote down some of the things that you have messed up in relationships previously in your history. And during this week, I opened up the suitcase that we had here, and I read and prayed through some of those things. And as I'm reading these things, number one, I'm thankful that I wasn't the only sinner in the room. But number two, I'm reading these things, and I know that I know when Jesus said it is finished, he was speaking about those things written on those small papers. And he's completely paid the price for you to be free. And so whether I know your story or not, this I know about you is that what Jesus did on the cross was enough for everything that you have done and will do. He's paid the price in full. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I believe that as often as I transgress, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. 
I want to read it again. I believe that as often as I transgress, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. So maybe when you speak to God, maybe when you pray to God, stop trying to convince Him to forgive you. Jesus already convinced Him to forgive you. He did it for you. And He's ready and willing to forgive you. Hebrews 8 verse 12 to 13 says this, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. How much do you need to like someone to be willing to not remember the things that they have done against you? I want to tell you, God likes you way more than what you feel comfortable with. He enjoys you. And He's willing to forget your sins. See, we became part of a new covenant. When you look at guys like Moses and Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Job and David, you and I are living in a time that they would have given their lives to live in. They're looking at us with envy as we, we walk in a new covenant where it's not because of what I've done, but it's because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. I've heard so many people, Christians, who've been serving God for many years, refer to themselves as sinners. I'm just a sinner. But I want to tell you, when you've responded to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible does not speak about you as a sinner anymore. The Bible calls you holy. And do you still have some habits of sin? Yes. But the Bible calls you holy. It doesn't refer to you as a sinner. So not only did I become part of a new family and a new covenant, but I became part of a new victory. Quickly think for a moment the things that you are scared of in this life. What are the things that cause you a great deal of anxiety? What are the things that cause you to have fear in your heart? For some of us, you might be scared of dying one day. For some of us, you are scared of falling ill one day. For some of you, you're scared of being lonely and dying alone one day. For some of you, it might be you're scared that you might fall away from Jesus, end up not following Him anymore. But here's Scripture's response. Here's Jesus' response to our fears. If, you, if it's the fear of dying for you, Jesus says that if you put your faith in me, you will have eternal life. If your fear is the fear of sickness, Jesus says, by my stripes you are healed. If your fear is the fear of being forgotten, Jesus says, I knew you before you were born. If your fear is the fear of loneliness, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If your fear is the fear of not having enough, Jesus says, I will supply for all of your needs. And if your fear is the fear of backsliding, Jesus says, no one can snatch you from my Father's hand. When Jesus' death was recorded, he addressed not only every single fear that you had and ever will have. He went beyond it. How many of you know that the Bible calls you more than a conqueror? So we don't only just deal and are victorious over bad stuff. We, we don't only just overcome fear. 
We don't only just overcome anxiety. The Bible says we are more than overcomers. We are more than victors, which means that we don't, don't only just get the victory, but we get the one who won the victory for us. And his name is Jesus. That's your reward. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror, is that you get him and not what he has to offer only. There's no greater reward than getting Jesus. None. I want to invite the worship team to the front. In my life, in the few years that I have been serving God, I've seen him heal people physically. I've seen him heal broken bones. I've seen him heal torn ligaments. I've seen people's legs grow in front of my eyes. I've seen God give people a brand new set of teeth right in front of my eyes. I've seen God heal cancers and colds. I've seen him heal depression in my own family. But I have yet to find a greater miracle than to know Jesus and to be in a relationship with him. When Jesus said, you will do the miracles and see the miracles that I have done, but even greater things than these will you see. He was speaking about seeing how someone who were dead in their sins become alive in Christ, born again as a new creation, where the old, the past, becomes irrelevant, and Jesus declares over it that it is finished, it's dealt with, it's paid in full. There's nothing left of it. There's not even a trace left. I want to end with the story of a guy named Jack Frost. It tells the story of him growing up as a young boy, experiencing a great deal of rejection by his earthly father. How his dad would show very little affection to him. The only affection that he got from his dad was when he actually achieved something. When he did well at school, when he did well in his sports, there wasn't a time when he can remember his own father giving him a hug or picking him up. And he remembers, he tells the story of as a young boy being part of his school's baseball team, always being the last one to be picked. And the teams were fighting between amongst themselves for who would end up getting Jack. And this day he was again picked last, stepped up to the plate, and he messed it up once again. And as he was walking off the field with his head slumped over, he says he tells about his friend's dad walking up to him, picking him up, and telling him, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for trying. And he says it's his very first memory of any person ever showing unconditional love and affection for him. He tells the story of whenever he would mess something up, how his earthly father would give him the look. The look of disappointment, the look of disgust, the look of disdain, the look of you're not good enough. He grew up, he eventually became a fisherman, owned his own boat, and in the area where he was fishing, he became what they called the top hook. He caught the most amount of fish on a regular basis. 
And he tells about his rejection as a boy drove him to make a success, to accomplish something in life. And he would tell about how his dad would come and visit him and him coming in with his boat, again weighing in and getting top hook once again. And his father would show affection, acceptance and love towards him. But he tells about how he would be out at sea, refusing to come in if he did not have the most fish on board. Because what if he gets into the harbor and he sees his dad standing there, giving him the look? And he would have given his life never to get the look from his father again. Tells a story of one day his daughter misbehaving and he found himself giving his own daughter the look. His daughter turns around, walks to her room, fetches the belt, hands the belt to her and tells, tells him, you can beat me. You can give me a hiding. But never again give me the look. The look which says, you're not good enough. Maybe some of you sitting here tonight, that's your story. Where you've always had to work to be good enough. You've always had to perform to earn acceptance and love. And it's caused you to run relentlessly in life, trying to earn people's acceptance. And when you come to God, you're trying to do the same. You're trying to, to work to be loved by Jesus when He is sitting there, standing in front of you, saying, there's nothing you can do to change my love for you. It's unconditional. I've paid the price for it. I want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Maybe some of you might be out at sea, being too scared to come into the harbor where you would meet with God because you're scared that He might look at you with regret, with disdain. But I want to tell you tonight that God is saying, if you come into the harbor with your boat and there's not one single fish on board, He will embrace you. He will run to you. He will love you. He will show affection for you. Because it's not about what you have done. So I want to give an opportunity tonight. If you've not made this decision, to say, Lord, what you have done on the cross for me, I want to have that. I want to know what it feels like to be loved, not for what I do, but for who I am. If you want to have an encounter with the love of God tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Him. So if that is you, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Just to say, God, here I am.
come and love me. I need to be loved by you. Scripture says this, whenever God's love encounters us, it says his perfect love drives out all fear. So Father, I pray tonight, Jesus, that your perfect love would come and remove fear from our hearts, would drive out fear, would drive out anxiety. God, come and show us a different kind of look. A look that says, I love you. A look that says, I like you. And a look that says, I want to be with you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.